You're listening to Sacks in the Basement, a production of the Broadcast Basement Limited, where every show is 30 minutes of good and comes from a basement bar on the south side of Chicago. Pull up a stool, pour a cold one, and join us right now for Sacks in the Basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always at SacksInTheBasement.com. We're going to kick off Sacks in the Basement with a big announcement. Sacks in the Basement, part of the Broadcast Basement On Demand Radio Network, over a quarter of a million downloads in 2021. And we have been invited to several Oktoberfest celebrations around the South Side. And I thought to myself, White Sox postseason, Oktoberfest. How about Sacks in the Basement's first ever Soxtoberfest season? We are going to be at locations and festivals all throughout late September and October as the White Sox make their run. There are more dates to be announced in the future, but I have two of them so far for you that are a lock. We will be there with Sox in the Basement merchandise, talking White Sox baseball, and drinking beer. Already official, Sox in the Basement will be at the Dixie Highway Brewery Trail Oktoberfest at the Blue Island Beer Company in Blue Island from 2 to 5 p.m. on the 26th of September. Mark your calendars now. All the breweries from the Dixie Highway Brewery Trail are going to be there and Socks in the Basement. A few days later, on the 2nd of October, Soxtoberfest continues. We will be at the Evergreen Park Oktoberfest at 50 Acre Park in the EP from 2 to 9 p.m. You can drink a lot of beers and get into a lot of White Sox discussion with Sox in the Basement over seven hours of Oktoberfesting. Soxtoberfesting. Many more dates, many more locations, many more celebrations planned and will be announced in the coming episodes. Mark those dates down. You can already buy advanced tickets to the Dixie Highway Brewery Trail Oktoberfest on the 26th where we will be in Blue Island on Eventbrite. Look for those tickets there. And the White Sox are at the greatest strength, I believe, that they have been at all season long. Yasmani Grandal is back. Zach Collins surprisingly sent to the minors. Were you shocked by that move? No, I was not shocked in, in, in the least little bit by that move. You didn't think it was weird that they, that they, that they you know, they have only three guys on their bench for the weekend. Like, that's it. They're not carrying the normal 13 and 13 split for players and pitchers. They're carrying 12 position players and 14 pitchers right now until rosters expand. Two extra guys get added on. We're going to have thoughts on that on this show and a bunch of other stuff up ahead. James Fox is going to be joining us as well. But you're not you're not surprised that they actually lowered the amount of guys available to Tony off the bench for the next couple of days? No, I'm not because it's what does he have to gain by having one extra player on the bench in Zach Collins versus potentially having more pitching options on a team where, of late, you've had a couple of the starters not go terribly deep. You've had some of the more reliable bullpen options looking like maybe they are either worn out or are not hitting their spots or are having some issues. That's what they feel like they need to do, and... You know, I, I don't really necessarily have an issue with them uh, making that decision. I also don't think Zach Collins was going to be on this team or part of this roster going forward anyway. I don't I don't see him coming back for the playoffs. 
This episode of Socks in the Basement brought to you proudly by Family Waterproofing Solutions. You heard about them at the beginning of the episode. Remember, mention us when you call them 24-7 at 708-330-4466. And check out all that they can do at FamilyDry.com. They will keep your basement dry and take care of all of your water mitigation needs. Uh, Listen, 7-7 through the toughest stretch that we saw in the second half, when we sat down and talked over the All-Star break right here on this show, yeah. we identified the stretch that began with the Field of Dreams game and the Yankees and the 14-game stretch that was Yankees, A's, Rays, and Jays. Very easy to remember all the A's at the end of there after Yankees. Yeah. Uh, and, and they went 7-7. Seven and seven. And I think we said 7-7 seven and seven was a realistic thing for this team. That you, you wanted to do more, and as we mentioned on our last episode, remember they're all on demand, anywhere podcasts can be found and always at SocksInTheBasement.com. Like we mentioned on last episode, I would have liked to have seen better than 7-7, seven and seven, but when I look at it now that it's over and Grandal is back now and the team continues to get itself more together, Rodon's back, Grandal's back, you know, eventually, hopefully, will be a complete full strength here, and that's the goal getting ready for the postseason – I'm okay with seven and seven. It wasn't what I wanted, but I can't be upset about that. You know, this team, even in 2005, went through August at 500. There are stretches that teams that go out, win 99, 100 games, go 500. That's okay. They're not really losing ground that much. I mean, I think they went down over the last month. They're down, uh, they, they've lost a game and a half of their lead, which is still massive over the second place Cleveland Indians. So I'm not that upset about 7-7. Seven and seven. Let's talk about some guys that are concerning me. First off, Cesar Hernandez. Here's a guy who's kind of fallen off after we made that acquisition. His OPS plus is down. He's sitting in an overall OPS of 714. He, he basically is still what he's always been for his career. He's always been a guy that hovers in the 90s in OPS plus, which means he's slightly below average. This is what he is. He was He's had his hot streaks this year. But this is about all you are going to expect. I've had a few people tell me like, oh, man, this is terrible. And, and you know, we, we should have gotten somebody else. And, you know, I wish we had Mandrigal. But Nick Mandrigal was never coming back this year. You needed to find something to fill the hole. And trust me, if this is all he is, he'll be one of the guys that we look at in the offseason and say, okay, whatever happened, happened here in this postseason. Is he the guy going forward? Because they have the option. It's not set in stone. They can keep him if they want to. But this is really what he is. And I'm kind of surprised that like people are shocked by it. He's going to be up. He's going to be down. He's going to sit just a little bit below what league average is in terms of hitting production. That's the thing that I think everybody's got to go back and remember is you're not looking at this, and, and fans need to stop doing this. We need to stop doing this as fans. Stop thinking about next year, okay, and worrying about Cesar Hernandez being this guy slumping like he has in August at some point next year, he's not guaranteed to be the guy at second base next year. That That is not even a thought that we need to have right now. What he is this year is a guy who has tried to get more power out of his bat, has gone for less contact than he had historically in his career, and for the month of August, he hit 200. It's not great. It's a 602 OPS that he put up. It's not great. But does that mean that he couldn't turn around and have a good September and say match what he did in July when he was with the Indians, where he hit 283 with an 887 OPS and cranked out a you know good six home runs there. Yeah, he could still come back and have a, have a stellar September. I mean, it, it's August. This is when some guys slump. They were facing some tough teams on the road, and you know 
coming back. I mean, if he if he turns around this weekend against the Cubs and just absolutely bombs them out of the ballpark, is anybody going to be complaining? No, and and that's the thing. He might he's going to go up a little. He's going to go down a little. The numbers say that if he corrects back to normal, he's still due for another hot streak, and that and that's a good thing. The guy I'm most concerned about is the guy that we traded Nick Madrigal for, and that's Craig Kimbrell. And I want to I just want to give a few stats here, and then I want to ask you if you as a fan are nervous about the Craig Kimbrell trade. And I'm not I'm not asking whether or not we want to rethink the trade. The trade on paper made perfect sense based upon what's going on with Craig Kimbrell this year and what's going on with Nick Madrigal this year, who's not even available, and the fact that second base is a replaceable position in free agency each and every year. But if you look at Kimbrell when we acquired him, he had one of the best whips in baseball. It was minuscule. It was in the 0.70s. 0.71. And then he has a terrible, it looks like 11 games for the White Sox that he's appeared in so far. And in that time, his walks and hits per innings pitched has ballooned very quickly to a 1.258. He is the equivalent now on the season, sitting in between Jose Ruiz and Garrett Crochet. That isn't a superstar out of the pen for the entire season. That's a guy who's just an average relief pitcher that can give you, you know, some innings and is going to have his ups and his downs. That's not what you expect from him. When you take a closer look, at the games that he has appeared in for the White Sox since July 31st when he first appeared against the Cleveland Indians. He has eight earned runs on the entire season. Six of those have come with the White Sox. He is a very different pitcher since coming to the Sox. So is this because he's pitching in the eighth inning or is this something else? And are you worried? That's the popular theory, right? That You know, the 39 games with the Cubs this year where he had the .49 ERA, the .71 whip, 64 strikeouts, you know, in those 39 innings, only the two earned runs, all came as a closer, all came, you know, closing games out. 23 of his 39 appearances ended up in a save. 11 games is a smaller sample size, but that's... Everybody sits there and and, and has that thing where they say, well, when you put a closer in a non-save situation... They don't have the same adrenaline. They don't have the same attitude. They don't have the same, you know, I, I don't know what it is, the, the je ne sais quoi that a closer has. If that's the case, that he can't come out and pitch the eighth inning of a game and get a hold versus a save, that's obviously a huge problem, and it's a Craig Kimbrell head issue and something that, frankly, Rick Khan should have thought about right ahead of time. Is 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 this guy capable of of not closing games? Because I've got Liam Hendricks. It's such a weird concern because we are now in a more modern type of game when it comes to how bullpens are used, and a lot of teams use their closers in high leverage situations in the seventh or the exactly. eighth. Exactly, and, and or and the fact that you would have a guy that well, if it's not the ninth inning, I don't pitch real well. That's crazy to me. Like, that's absolutely insane to me that that would even still be a thing. That mentality should have been weeded out of pitchers a long time ago. I mean, it's something that every team preaches now. Your inning's your inning. You're closing that inning. That's what you're doing. You know, I get muscle aches all the time. 
I've gone from being able to do whatever I want to and not feeling any pain to basically getting pain for any kind of physical activity. Good news, there's a local family-owned Southside business that provides a CBD topical that will not break the bank. Creaky Bone Balm offers concentrated relief for creaky bones. It is an effective hemp-based CBD in a rejuvenating balm. And guess what? It's made in small batches, always free of preservatives, and all natural ingredients. It's great for muscle aches, tension, inflammation, joint pain. You can even use it for skin ailments like burns and dry cracked skin. Right now, go to creakybone.com and use the promo code BASEMENT. Get 20% off your order. And now check out the new 2,500 milligram balm with reduced pricing on their classic balms right now at creakybone.com. Today's guest on Socks in the Basement brought to you by Evil Horse Brewing Company right at the end of the Dixie Highway Brewery Trail in Crete, Illinois. Visit them today at 1338 Main Street and check out all of the award-winning beers on tap at evilhorsebrewing.com. Evil Horse Brewing is going to be part of Soxtoberfest and that Dixie Highway Brewery Trail Oktoberfest that kicks it all off on the 26th of September. I have placed a link for you to order tickets to be a part of that Oktoberfest event. Socks in the Basement will be out there. It is in the show description for this episode of Socks in the Basement, or you can get those tickets at eventbrite.com. Get them while you can. When they're gone, they're gone. Joining me on the phone line right now, good friend of the show, James Fox from Future Sox is on. James breaks down things all the time when it comes to the White Sox. Every once in a while, James will break a story. Every once in a while, James will be on Twitter aggravating White Sox fans with his hot takes. Uh, who have you been ticking off lately, James? How are you? <laughs> uh, I'm good. Um, I don't know if I've really ticked off anybody. I mean, maybe, you know, I think the White Sox, and we're going to get into it, I think they have the 30th ranked farm system in baseball right now, and there's 30 teams, so... That's uh, not great, but, you know, it's 30th for the right reasons. I don't really think anybody, nobody's really come at us too hard, like saying, oh, it's way better or anything like that. You know, it's, it's kind of funny because when we get into this, like the top 10 of this list is still pretty decent for like the worst farm system in the league. Like you remember the days when like, you know, pre-2005 and after I mean, they were 30, like, with a bullet, where they had, like, no prospects, like, none, like, nobody to come up. And it's not, it's not like that now. They just lack, you know, those, like, top 100-type guys after they graduated, like, 10 of them, and you know, over the last two years. And the, and the list that you're talking about, Future Sox just put out their midseason top 30 prospect list for the Chicago White Sox. And the first thing that stands out to me, and it kind of speaks to what you just said, uh, last year, or at least maybe it might have been at the beginning of the year, I remember guys like a uh, Jared Kelly just drafted immediately right up to the top of the list. Uh, Yoki Cespedes, okay, you sign him right up at the top of the list. Colson Montgomery, your first round draft pick, is your number one guy. It kind of speaks to nobody's really kind of established themselves yet as being the best prospect in the system. So the new guys, whoever's new, who has like that that high ceiling because we haven't seen enough of them yet all of a sudden ends up at the top of a list. Is that true? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we had a lot of questions because, look, like, you, like the common fan now has seen Jake Burr, they've seen Gavin Sheets, you know, they've heard Cespedes was the number one international prospect, like whether I think that's true or not, you know. You know, so then it's like, oh, why is Colton Montgomery a one? 
Well, he's 19 and he plays shortstop. That, that's pretty much the reason. Scouts project that he could stay at shortstop. It's a left-handed bat with power potential that's going to play in the middle of the diamond. And he's 19 years old. So he's the number one prospect in the system. There's multiple guys. I mentioned Cespedes. Romy Gonzalez has really burst onto the scene. But he's a 24-year-old that plays shortstop and center. And then Yolbert Sanchez is their other, you know, Cuban that they signed in the international class like two years ago that plays shortstop. Those three guys could be on a big league next year at some point, like helping the big league team. You know, I want to run down the guys that you have in the top 10, though, and and then uh, just kind of point out something I noticed in the list, get your comments on. Uh, starting from one and going down the 10, you have Colson Montgomery, our new a draftee, the shortstop, Yoki Cespedes in the outfield. You have third baseman Wes Kath. He is, again, another draftee in the second round this year. Jake Berger comes in four. Nore Vera is uh, the right-handed pitcher sitting at five. Gavin Sheets is at six. Matthew Thompson at seven. Jerry Kelly drops all the way down to eighth. Andrew Dahlquist at nine. And Jose Rodriguez, a shortstop, sitting at ten. What is interesting about your list, though, are the guys that used to be in that top 10 or top 15, like a Blake Rutherford who didn't even make your top 30. So as you look at your list, knowing that sometimes guys end up really high up on a list and never pan out for whatever reason, how many of those 10 guys that I just mentioned do you do you believe, just you personally, has a shot of being a major leaguer one day? Well, I think Montgomery and Cass for sure. I mean, you know, but they're high, the thing is like they're high school picks, right? So everything goes well. Those are top 100, you know, top 150-ish prospects within the next couple of years. I think Cespedes definitely plays in the big leagues. Berger and Sheik have already played in the big leagues. So I think Vera is the best pitching prospect in the system. He's, it's a little bit weird with him. So he's in the Dominican Summer League. You know, once you sign and you live in the Dominican, you typically have to stay there for, like, the first year, like, to get your full bonus. And he, you know, he only got $1.5 million from the White Sox. So for them to move him stateside it would like cut into that bonus i'm not familiar with tax law but like that's what it is so he's basically pitching in the dominican summer league on dirt fields like against 16 year olds like looking at the gaudy staff isn't really that important but he's sitting 97 to 99 and looks like a starter with like a starter build so like if vera's in winston-salem next year i wouldn't be surprised if vera's their number one prospect when we do this in the preseason that wouldn't surprise me I want to ask you about a guy that sits right in the middle of your list at number 15, Mike Rodolfo, the outfielder that has been in the system for a while, dealt with Tommy John surgery, other injuries throughout his time down there, and is going to be out of options when he gets the spring training next year for the White Sox, which means if he doesn't make the team, he gets he gets sent out into the ether where some other team can grab him, and he's been performing very well at the plate, from what I can tell, in the minors this year. What do you think the future holds for him? Is he a guy that makes the roster next year? Is he, the guy, is he a guy they're trying to deal desperately before they run into that problem? What happens with him? Yeah, I mean, he's probably on another team. I mean, I kind of feel like he's going to be one of these guys that's in DFA limbo. You know how, like, you follow MLB trade rumors in the summer when, or in the winter, I guess, when some guys claimed by, like, five different teams in one offseason and then he finally cleared? I just think if they keep him, if they don't trade him, he's probably going to big league spring training. I just don't see any way that he's useful enough right now on a team that's looking to contend that he would make the White Sox. Well, then he's out of options, and they have to try to, like, DFA him and, like, get him to the Myers, and he would absolutely get claimed by, like, 
a bad team. You know, the time has just kind of ran out on him because he's just taken, taken forever now. You know, he's a guy I've always kind of liked. He's got a lot of power. I wouldn't be surprised if two years from now he's like Adolis Garcia light, like for, you know what I mean, for somebody like what he just did. It just might not be here because sometimes it just doesn't work out and guys run out of time. You have a list of 30 guys on the Future Sox website, your top 30 prospects for the White Sox as of the midseason, futuresox.com if anybody wants to check it out. Give me one guy on that list. He's like maybe your, 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 your pet favorite. Yeah, so I'm going to give you two because one, everybody knows now. Like, it would have been Romy Gonzalez, but, you know, Romy Gonzalez was a 18th round pick out of Miami in 2018. You know, he, he was a guy that Nick Hostetler kind of talked about quite a bit, like after the draft. He could play multiple positions. He had some power. You know, but then the season, there was no season in 2020, so he wasn't really doing anything. Well, he's one of these guys. He went out. He got his body, like, in impeccable shape, I guess. Like, other players have said – you know, it's like an Adam Engel body, basically. Um, so he's 24. He's playing shortstop primarily, but he can play shortstop and center, and he hit 20 homers and stole 20 bases in double-A. And, look, double-A Birmingham is usually where guys go to die in this system, and he performed. So at a certain point, it's like, okay, well, this guy's a dude. Well, he was promoting to Charlotte recently, and he's got, like, two homers and five doubles in his like, first week in Charlotte. So, you know, I think the other night on Twitter, I called Romy, uh, Romy Gonzalez, the Larry Garcia replacement, like that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and then our guy at 22 is my Michelle Gonzalez. He was a 12th rounder out of Puerto Rico, like a high school Puerto Rican Academy. He was the best player on their team in Arizona this year. And now he's at uh, Canapolis. I think he's got like three or four homers since he got promoted to Canapolis. He's a no doubt center fielder. He's like a 20 year old. Um, so he's one of the guys that I'm looking forward to keeping an eye on going forward. James, we'll talk more in the offseason about prospects, I'm sure. We've got the playoffs coming up here very shortly. I appreciate you jumping on with us. And, uh, you know, go White Sox. Let's get this offense going on a regular basis instead of uh, starts and stops, huh? Yeah. Grandall's back now. So congratulations. Like, that's going to be good. Having him back is uh, a pretty big deal, and I think he might help the pitching staff, too. I think Dallas Keuchel has hurt a lot by Dallas. By, uh, just Monty Grandall not being around. So, yeah, stretch around and playing some bad teams. It's time to get fat and, you know, go into the playoffs, hopefully with home field advantage. And let's talk about September call-ups and a possible idea for a slightly outside-of-the-box postseason roster addition, like a 26-man. All right, now, two players. Which one would you rather have available off the bench on your roster? Would you take a guy who, against left-handers, 732, average OPS, right around an OPS plus of 100, and against righties, a 709, which is a little below, uh, would you take that guy to the postseason, or would you take a guy that's terrible against lefties with a very low OPS of a 322, but you could bring a guy that had the over 1,000 OPS against righties that could really do some damage against right-handed pitching? Uh, neither one of them are guys that you would consider to be very versatile when it comes to defense in any way and likely would be a bat off the bench. Which one would you rather have? The guy that you feel super confident against righties or the guy that's just basically average against both sides? And this is not somebody you're expecting to start. This is somebody you're expecting to be a bench player and a role player. This person would not start on any roster in the postseason. This person would be coming off the bench. This is your 26th man. This is a guy that in no way is going out on the field and starting a game in the postseason. I think as a 26th man, you could very easily make 
the case that having that one trick of just being able to absolutely destroy right-handed pitching and using them in a pinch hitting role or, you know, in a late inning type of a situation where you're, you're maybe doing a double switch type of a thing and you know that the, the bullpen you're in up against is, is stacked with righties, but you said not very versatile. So, you know, that's to take into consideration. I think there's a good case to be made for that. In, if you're going to have somebody who's balanced against both sides, I think you would. it might come down to do they bring something better defensively than that one, you know, that one trick pony against the right-handed pitchers. All right, so then what you would be saying is instead of Jake Lamb, Jake Berger. Like bring Berger up as September call-ups, make sure that he is what he is. Heck, maybe he starts hitting against lefties, which is something he was able to do. He's been able to do in the minor leagues. He only struggled against them in the majors, so maybe he's figured something out while he's uh, down there again in, in Charlotte and see whether or not he beats out Lamb for that spot. Because if you decide you only want to carry 12 pitchers because you're only going to have four starters in the postseason and you you think that you just want your best relief pitchers for these series and you want to carry that extra guy on the bench so you have five on the bench that gives Tony the versatility when he's in the middle of a, a game and there's gamesmanship with, oh, I'll bring up this pinch hitter or I'll do this or I'll make this move. If you decide you want to go and do that, the choice would very easily, because I don't think you're getting rid of Larry Garcia. You you want to have a guy that can come in and sub in defensively, and and he's actually improved against left-handed pitching. He's actually coming back to his norm because he's only being used sparingly now instead of constantly. And when you use him sparingly, his numbers go up. I mean, you can see that throughout his career. Less at bats means better numbers for Larry Garcia. Everyday play, he he kind of falls off a little bit. Okay. So I, I think he's definitely there, and I think Goodwin and Hamilton are definitely on the team because they make up an incredible player. Hamilton against lefties and Goodwin against righties, really, really good player out there in the outfield. So uh, And a really good hitter if you're able to do that kind of thing. So you would pick, because I would do the same thing, Berger as that 26 guy coming off the bench over Lamb. Do you think they'll do that? I think if Jake Berger gets a call up, and he is part of the expanded rosters in September, and he actually gets a chance to play, I think that is what he is auditioning for, okay? I think he is auditioning for Jake Lamb's spot. Because Lamb is the last, he's the guy that I think is most in danger of not being on the playoff roster, simply because he only brings the one thing to the table. But that aside, I I really do think that Jake Berger has a chance to, if he shows uh, that... He has a more balanced bat, like you said. If he can hit lefties again, and he's still hitting righties really well, and he can play third base, which I think Lamb can but isn't really all that good at, if Berger's got a little bit more flexibility to him than Lamb does and is able to come in in any situation, I think that the Sox carry him into the postseason. Even though Lamb is a veteran and even though Lamb has more experience and in theory would not be overwhelmed by the, you know, the or awestruck by being in the playoffs. Optimal lineups in the postseason if everybody's back, okay? Grandala catcher, Abreu at first, Hernandez at second, Moncada at third. He's the weakest person against left-handed pitching, according to OPS this year. Uh, Anderson and at short, Vaughn, Robert, Hamilton, Jimenez covering the outfield in DH. Jimenez is also very low against left-handed pitching, but I think that's because of the small sample size. And then against righties, Grandal, a catcher, Abreu, Hernandez, the worst against right-handed pitching. 
Moncada, Anderson, Jimenez, Robert, Angle, and Goodwin all in the starting lineup. And you would carry a bench then of Garcia uh, uh, as well as Zavala. And the only other guy that I didn't mention would be Berger. You'd go 14 players, 12 pitchers. I like that. There's going to be people that are going to argue and say that I'm crazy about it, but I don't know why you need to carry 13 pitchers when you're not going to use five starters. And I think a little bit of versatility. Look, this this bench, let me just explain. If, if you went with this plan, this bench would have Garcia and Angle being the only two viable guys coming up against left-handed pitching. And you would have Berger being the clear guy that you would bring off the bench against a righty. And Zavala could also be the guy that comes up against a righty. He'd be the second best guy. And those are all, all those guys that I mentioned, they have an OPS plus at least right around 100 right now. They're at least average. Everybody else is below average. You add Berger in, you get that extra oomph. Otherwise, you just got a bunch of average to below average guys coming off the bench. I like the idea of a guy coming off the bench that could have a moment. And the odds would say he could really have a moment against a right-handed pitcher. And it, I, I like the idea of Larusa having that ability to bring him in in a situation when it calls for it during the postseason. Plus the fact that, like you said, better position player at third base in case you need him to go stand over at third base. Because I don't want to see Leary Garcia over there in case of an emergency like Moncada hurts himself. Do you? Like, I mean, think about, like, if somebody goes down and somebody gets hurt, the best option that I would want at third base, I think would I think I'd rather see Jake Berger than anybody else over there, wouldn't you? Absolutely. And and if if and this is a huge if and I've got no intelligence into whether or not this could possibly happen, but if over the course of September you do manage to see Jake Berger you know slotted into a first base on a day or slotted in at second base or if they feel like he becomes something of a, you know, a possible DH candidate in a certain game. Those types of things are also going to be extremely telling. But I, I, when I saw Moncada the other night, take a swing and grab his hand, stuff like that. You know, you look at it and you go, he's a, he's a guy that would probably try and tough that out. But if there is something dogging him and that's why his numbers aren't quite what we want them to be. Once again, I'm not trying to set Twitter off, but Moncada is not what we expected. If that's the situation, then Jake Berger is a much better insurance policy over there than I think trying to force Andrew Vaughn into that utility role or Larry Garcia or definitely not Danny Mendick or even, you know, trying to do something, you know, really crazy with it, like completely maneuver the infield around to try and have Garcia at second with Cesar Hernandez now manning third for the first time. All those things are 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 out there and we've also seen the Jake Lamb at third base experience doesn't make much sense and he's going to be extremely limited i would much rather have Berger get an opportunity to come in and earn a playoff spot and if he does and he's really you know hot help if he makes it so that tony's got to play him every day and that costs somebody who's struggling their their time it's the playoffs man i want the hottest hands out there socks in the basement socks in the basement Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always on SocksInTheBasement.com.